If you will, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. If you have trouble finding that, it's toward the front of your Bible. My goal this morning is um, to spend the bulk of our time in two verses, verses 14 and 15. We will read chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, just in an attempt to, to gain some of the context. Um, and, and that's just going to be difficult uh, with, with time constraints. You, you only have so much time. I figure two hours is our cap this morning, uh, so I'll try to try to keep it under that. But that'll be our our text, and we'll try to focus on two verses. I don't know if you've paid attention at all uh, recently, but it's uh, it's a little hairy in our culture right now. Uh, things are difficult, and um, no one with any measure of sanity is expecting. Uh, sunshine and rainbows uh, in the near future. It looks like it's just going to be difficult. Um, A lot of struggles, a lot of hardship uh, coming our way. Not only that, but um, then we still have sin we get to deal with. Um, Struggle with temptation, with sin. This is all just this overwhelming uh, weight that can press upon us in this moment. And if I had to guess, I would say that at least one of you would be honest enough to say that you have struggled with that feeling of being overwhelmed. You look at your, our enemy, and I'm not talking about the enemy uh, with uh, the cultural voices around us. I'm talking about the enemy, Satan, occupying so much uh, authority in our world and pressing upon us so hard, it can be just overwhelming. So what I want this morning is I want us to see in, in this wonderful text encouragement and hope and promise. And I want it to call us and challenge us to greater faithfulness because of the hope, because of the victory that we find in Genesis three fourteen and 15. So let's endeavor to read the text together. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's no way we're going to get the full context of these 15 verses. The reality is that uh, we will leave a lot on the floor this morning. We could talk about how Eve changed the words of God. She changed the blessing. She changed the command. She changed the curse, the judgment. Time does not permit. There's so much that we could discuss this morning. And I'm certain that you'll sit there and you'll say, well, if I were handling those 15 verses, I would address that. To which I would say, let's do it. Ken Ham has spent most of his life, I don't think he's ever read past Genesis 3. (laughs) And he still is finding new things to say about these three chapters. There's a reason for that. If we are sloppy... In the first three chapters of Genesis, we will be sloppy in the rest of our theology. If we are careless here, we will be subject to any wind and wave of doctrine that comes our way. Because here is the foundation, not only of history, not only of humanity, but of the gospel itself. Here are the roots, here are the foundations. And so in a world that has lost its ever-loving mind, in a world that is chaotic and is pressing in upon us, I want to encourage you and challenge you with five truths to which we can cling from this passage. I think it's important for us to notice just a a bit of the structure of this chapter. We're not going to dive into it, but it helps us to see something that's pointed out here by God. The introduction of the characters, if you will. You have the serpent, then the woman, then the man. The serpent is introduced as the most crafty. The woman is introduced as being tempted. The man is introduced as uh, falling victim to the temptation. And then again, we see the same pattern. Serpent, woman, man. Serpent is cursed. Woman is judged. Man is judged. But within there, there's another pattern. The questioning. God questions man. God questions woman. And then the serpent. There's a break in the pattern. You notice, when you read Genesis, it's all about patterns. There's a rhythm. Moses has a rhythm to his writing. And he doesn't make mistakes. He makes intentional moves to show you something important. The man is questioned. The woman is questioned. The serpent is not questioned. And I want us to see this pattern and how it points us to something great. And how this picture in Genesis shows us Not only a God who is on his throne, but a Christ who has come and is victorious over sin and death. First, we see this great antagonist. When you read Genesis 1, it explodes onto the scene the glory and the majesty of God the Creator. And then when you get to Genesis 2, you show the intimacy and care of God, the loving Father, over His creation. Nothing challenges, nothing rivals this great God. But in Genesis 3, 1, an antagonist, the first antagonist is introduced. And he is great. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field That the Lord God had made. And I want you to cling to this first truth. That the great antagonist 
is no threat to God's authority or dominion. God has given the instruction to Adam and Eve to take dominion of the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. And now the serpent comes in and he threatens this. He threatens the role of Adam and Eve, but ultimately he's threatening the supremacy and sovereignty of God himself. And I want you to read this and hear this as it was intended to be heard by an Israelite. Reading it from the hands of Moses for the first time. You've been surrounded your entire life by pagan mythology. You're for the first time hearing this account of creation. You've been raised in Egypt. You're familiar with all the uh, mythological proclamations and origin stories of creation and gods. But here is the God that needs no explanation of where he's come from. In the beginning, God. He's great and he's mighty. And you're seeing this, this great and powerful God. And now, this God who is described to have creational authority over all the representative deities that you are familiar with your entire life, is now challenged. And he's not challenged by any creature. He's challenged by a serpent. Now you and I, we're thinking snakes are terrible, they're gross, they're disgusting. My wife saw a snake this week. To hear her tell it, it was two miles long and 17 feet thick. And it currently lives under our house and has eaten one of our children. That's how we think of snakes, they're just horrible nuisances. But again, come back to the original hearer. And you might hear of a serpent that reminds you of Nehebuchal, the Egyptian god who judged the dead and imparted that which gives life eternally to those who have deceased. A truly powerful deity in Egyptian life who took the form of a serpent. Yes, you could say that Ra was the ultimate and supreme god in Egyptian mythology, but it was, it was Nehebuchal that everyone feared and everyone dreaded. So now, as an Israelite, you're hearing this. You're hearing this. Serpent comes in. He's the most crafty. This is going to be the right challenger. Because in Egyptian mythology, there is all sorts of challenges to Ra, to all the deities. Here's the great challenger. This is what you're expecting. You have heard something different in the first two chapters of Genesis. But now, there is the great adversary. Only, he's not. Take note of this. The craftiest of all creatures. The great opposition to God. And he's put down with a word. The great antagonist quickly and decisively goes from the most crafty to the most cursed. Look at that. In verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Jump all the way to verse 14. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. With a word. Is this not what we have come to know and cherish and expect only when we when we expect this we typically expect it in line with end time thinking with our eschatology that one day Christ will speak a word at the great final battle if it were Christ will speak and history will end and Satan will be finally and ultimately defeated if that's your understanding that's wonderful but it's incomplete Because now, in Genesis 3, at the beginning, God speaks to this great adversary who is no great adversary at all. He is an ant on a boot. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock 
God's sovereignty and supremacy will not and cannot be challenged. Here in Genesis 3, we have the introduction of this great threat. And it is no threat at all. Friend, are, are you threatened today by the enemy's wiles? And do, you, do you find yourself threatened and encroached upon by Satan's attacks? Does it seem as if maybe you are overmatched? I want to give you some good news. You are. You are overmatched. But God is not. The Christ who has redeemed you, the Spirit who dwells within you, is not overmatched. Take heart, brother. Take heart, sister. The great adversary that threatens everything is no temptation, no struggle, no difficulty for our great and sovereign King. Amen? Amen. Take heart in that truth. There's a second truth I want us to see this evening, this morning. Second truth we can cling to is that the, the terror of the serpent's curse magnifies the beauty of God's grace. This element of this inquisition that is absent is, is so beautiful. God questions the man and then the woman and then he doesn't question the serpent at all. In his questioning of man and of woman, there is some compassion. There is a tenderness in his voice. There's certainly, there's certainly uh, what we would express as disappointment. There's certainly a, a judgment in his voice. But the fact that he's asking, the fact that he's questioning, leads the reader to think that there is something that is going to come on the other side of the question. There's hope. But there's... No question for the serpent. Adam, why'd you do this? Eve, why'd you do this? Serpent, here's your curse. There's no explanation sought from the serpent because there is no reconciliation to be offered. Satan, by this point, has already rebelled against God and been cast out of heaven. He has already set himself against the kingdom of God, against the glory of God, against the rule and the reign of the one true king of creation. There's no longer any measure of hope, no longer any measure of mercy or grace to be extended to him. So all that is left for the serpent to hear is the judgment that is to come. The absence of the interrogation The absence of the questioning makes this hauntingly clear. It doesn't matter why you did this. You're already cursed. It doesn't matter what explanation you give. Judgment is coming. And yet, despite the lack of grace or the lack of mercy that God extends to the serpent, we all sit and read rightly, God is just in his judgment against the serpent because the serpent surely deserved what he received. No one sits here and reads Genesis 3 and thinks, well, you know, maybe the serpent should have got a second chance. Maybe the serpent got a hard rap. No, no one does that. We sit there and we say, yes, yes, the serpent is crushed and is going to be crushed. Amen for a glorious and holy God. It is that terrifying reality. The same reality that causes the reader to shudder with dread also awakens in us a sense of incredible Oh, at the grace that is extended to us. Not only to Adam and Eve, but to us in Christ. We, we, read, we read Genesis 3, these first 13 verses. Adam and Eve are no less guilty of rebelling against God's holy commands than Satan himself. They are no more pure, no more innocent. They are just as guilty. So too, you are no less guilty than our first parents. In your own rebellion, in your natural state, you stand beside them in the garden, naked, ashamed, and guilty. 
And it is the same grace that was extended to Adam and Eve that God has extended to you in Christ Jesus. And that grace is magnified by the swift and immediate judgment that's levied against the serpent and the operative voice behind him. Consider Satan's position. Consider the angels that fell with him in their position. And the countless numbers of the fallen angels that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. There are none. There is no redemption, no reconciliation offered to those who rebelled against God and Satan's rebellion. There was nothing extended to them. No grace, no mercy. And God was right. And He was just. And He was good in that judgment. How much more does that make us scream the hallelujahs of thanksgiving that God did not give us the same judgment that we rightly deserved as the fallen angels and their leader. Instead, He has extended to us in Christ Jesus immeasurable grace and mercy. Amen. We have no right to cry out, why doesn't He save all? It's the wrong sentiment. We should cry out, why did He save any? And certainly, why would He redeem me? It's the terror of the serpent's curse that magnifies our understanding of grace. And let's just see just how truly marvelous and undeserved it is. Third truth this morning. The curse of the serpent is a perpetual reminder of the curse and the futility of sin. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. It's this right here. This is why I wound up preaching this text because as I was uh, uh, just going through my Bible reading it dawned on me I don't know if I've really ever answered the question apologetically about the serpent being cursed to go on his belly so I wanted to, to dive in and answer this question apologetically for my own uh, for my own sake for my own purposes and then the text just kind of took hold of me the, the, this is an interesting question a lot of people have uh, some weird opinions about this. Because here's the, here's the deal. Uh, why was it a curse for the serpent to go on his belly when a serpent goes on his belly? So did God create the serpent cursed? I thought he said everything was good. You see the problem? All right. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I found it interesting. And we'll just uh, we'll dip our toes in the water. And give you a chance to waste your afternoon studying it with more depth, okay? Uh, there's questions uh, and propositions that the serpent was originally um, like a bipedal, man-like creature. Walked on two feet and kind of looked like a man, which would make a little more sense as to why Eve is talking to a snake. Which is one of the other things we need to, I think, think through. The other one was that uh, maybe the, the serpent had four legs originally, and God took those legs away and cursed it to uh, walk or to slide on his belly for the rest of his uh, life. And you know, at one point in my life, I thought that made a little bit of sense. Someone proposed that uh, the serpent had wings. Never in my mind thought that uh, the serpent had wings. I can't imagine how terrifying a snake with wings would be. <laughs> They reasoned that because in Revelation, uh, Satan is referred to as the great dragon, that he must have been a snake with wings. I can't imagine what Lindsay would say if that flew in our house. Uh, someone made the suggestion that, you know, not all serpents are snakes, which I'd never heard that one before. Uh, so, a lot of weird stuff out there. I don't know if you've ever really spent a lot of time studying in Genesis the first three chapters, but there's a lot of weird stuff about all three chapters 
in the first of Genesis. What do we do with this? How do we answer this question? Well, I think the most reasonable explanation is perhaps the most boring. The serpent was always a snake in the way that we understand it. He always slithered on the ground. He always was on his belly. You say, well then, how do we get around the idea that God made the serpent cursed? Well, it helps us to understand what God is doing in his judgments against the serpent, against the woman, and against the man. He's taking that which they were created to do and making it burdensome. The woman once had no pain in conception or childbirth, but now she would. She once submitted freely to the role assigned to her, but now she would rebel against it. Man once worked the ground and saw it as a blessing, but now it would be associated with toil and pain. And He once ate fruit with no hint of diminishing life or death, but now would eat bread until he dies. And the very eating of bread would be a perpetual reminder that one day you will die. So too, God takes the very nature of the serpent and makes it a burden. And we have to understand that there's, there, there's something at play here. We're dealing with with two realities at the same time. So when we hear God speak to the serpent, we need to hold two entities in our hands. One is the serpent, the slithering, slimy snake that every one of you wishes was in your house right now. That thing. And we also need to hold in our hands the voice, the active agent behind the serpent, that the serpent represents Satan himself. And in this curse, there is this balance between addressing the serpent physically and addressing Satan representatively through the serpent. Here he begins by speaking to the serpent itself. What was once lovely about the serpent is now, serpent is now detestable. And you say, how could a serpent be lovely? In what scenario can we envision a serpent to be lovely? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Here's how we know it was lovely. He said to the woman, and what follows next is not, the woman was freaked out and ran away. No. He said to the woman, and the woman just naturally, it's the most normal thing in the world, responded. She wasn't recoiling in disgust. It wasn't out of place in God's beautiful, perfect garden. It made sense. This is rational. So what was once lovely about the serpent is now detestable. There's nothing here. There's no suspicion. But now this slithering creature, it's very slithering, is a repulsion. But he says something. Uh, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And a lot of people have a problem with this. And they'll, they'll, they'll look at you and they'll say, listen, snakes don't eat dust. They just don't. Now, I've heard people try to argue around this and say, well, you know, when the snake uh, sticks its tongue out as, a, as kind of a receptor deal, it, it, will, it will sometimes get some dust in its tongue and, and it will kind of eat dust that way as it's trying to feel around. To come to that conclusion and say that's what God meant paints a rather oblique picture of God's understanding of His creation. Don't you think? You're going to eat dust all the days of I mean, and what I mean by that is, is you're going to eat duck eggs and chicken eggs and mice and all the other things that we normally associate with eating. But every once in a while, you're going to get a fleck of dust in your mouth. And that's what you're going to be known as eating. 
That's like saying that I eat kale for the rest of my life. Listen, the only way that kale is getting into my mouth is by accident that my wife somehow sticks it into a steak. That's the only way it's going in. No, to say that that's what God is, is getting at, I think is a misunderstanding and a misrepresentation of God's intelligence. So then what is he saying? Snakes don't eat dust. They don't eat dirt. Well, when we read the rest of Scripture, we see that there is a common understanding of this phrase, to eat dust. And you know this phrase. Because when you're running a race and you smoke the person next to you, what'd they just do? They ate your dust. In Micah chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, Micah declares that the nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, their ears shall be deaf, they shall lick the dust like a serpent. Like the crawling things of the earth, they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Uh, Micah is not saying that the nations are going to get down and, and take a mouthful of dust. No, the, the licking of dust like the serpent. He equates the licking of dust like a serpent to defeat, to conquest. No, you're going to lick dust because you're going to be defeated. Psalm 72 verse 9, May the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Isaiah 49, 23, Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. You will crawl on your belly and you will lick dust. You will crawl on your belly because you have been defeated. You have been conquered. And everything, everything about the snake today is a perpetual reminder of the curse and the futility of sin. We see it slithering on the ground and we see conquest and defeat. We recoil in disgust from its slithering to its defeated posture to its ultimate end. You will do this all the days of your life. Not saying that you will be eternal, but there will, be a, there will come a day when your life comes to an end. It's a victory statement. And every time we see the serpent, we should recall the curse of the fall and the victory of the king over the serpent. The fourth truth to which we can cling is that the promised enmity reveals that man will struggle against sin all his days. In verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Some people will say, oh, no, this, this is why women don't like snakes. I don't like snakes. And I'm just going to tell you, have you ever met someone who likes snakes and walked around saying, you know, that's a pretty normal dude? No. Now, if you've got a pet snake, I'm sorry if I offended you. You're a weirdo. <laughs> but that's not what this means. That doesn't mean that there's always, you're never going to like... Some, some people are just weird and they like snakes. And if that's your thing, we'll pray for you. But there's a shift in the curse here. Remember I said we've got to hold two entities in our hands. We've been looking at the, at the serpent physical, and now, now we're transitioning. The, the application to the serpent physical applies to Satan himself, but also now we see his transition into the serpent representative of Satan. Because here in verse uh, 15, it's hard to get us to just the serpent. We have what, what Calvin refers to as an anagogy. And I know that you know exactly what that word is. It's like an analogy, but with a G instead. Basically, it's, it's just a device that's intended to take our minds to a spiritual truth while we're discussing a physical reality. Now, that's just a $2 word to say that. The serpent is standing in for Satan here. And Satan is what's being addressed the serpent fades into the back of your mind as you read this naturally, and the deceiver comes to the fore of your mind. Now we see that man will always be in battle against temptation and sin. 
We must always, therefore, be on guard against our enemy. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. This isn't just for the rest of Eve's days, she's going to have this conflict with you. No, her offspring and your offspring. We see this playing out as soon as Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. And it plays out in large scale in chapter 5 and chapter 6 until God comes and judges. And then when Noah comes out of the ark, guess what happens? There's conflict and enmity again between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Always, all of our days, we must be on guard against our enemy because we will always be in conflict with him. He is the father of lies. He is the thief that is coming to steal, kill, and destroy. He is the accuser and the tempter of Job. He is the schemer that we must be aware of his wiles. He is the roaring lion ready to pounce. He is the great dragon. Everywhere he is depicted as our great enemy. What are we to do then? How are we to live our lives? Knowing that we are in absolute, constant conflict with this great adversary. It helps us to remember that he is our great adversary. But he is the great adversary that has been defeated in Christ. And I want you to see how Paul tells us to handle this conflict. Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 11. He says to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think that you might need to go home and read Ephesians 6.12, commit it to memory, commit it to your heart, and recite it every moment of every day of your life. Because I think this might be the most neglected reality in Scripture. Because we do not see ourselves in conflict with spiritual realities. We see ourselves in conflict with annoying personalities, individuals we can't stomach, work that is difficult, culture that is burdensome, governments that are overpowering. We see ourselves in conflict with natural realities. And we are. But there is a greater conflict in which we are engaged. And it is a spiritual conflict. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Not of Washington. Against the authorities. Not in our police sphere. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So what then must we do? Therefore take up and put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Do you know why so many people, so many people that are in the church today refuse to acknowledge and live out Ephesians 6. They refuse to link in terms of putting on the full armor of God, of the breastplate of righteousness, of the shoes of readiness and the gospel of peace. Do you know why? Because we don't believe Ephesians 6.12. And we don't believe Ephesians 6.12 because we have a sloppy and careless understanding of Genesis 3. There will be enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. All the days of your life. And that enmity would be enough to drive us to despair if he didn't finish the verse. The fifth truth to which we can cling The promise of the seed places our hope on the one who conquers sin. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The seed will crush the head of the serpent. Here's the gospel in seed form. If you'll 
pardon that pun, the great Proto-Evangelium, the first hint of the Gospel, all the way in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Take note what is said. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. If you're reading the NIV, it's okay. You can have a bad translation every now and then. But the NIV says that he will crush his head. The Hebrew word there means strike. So you can see where they get, get crushed, where they get bruised. The word is just strike. It's intended to play on the curse of the serpent. Satan, like the serpent, will be brought low and will be able to deal a comparatively weak blow to the offspring, to the seed of the woman. However, the seed of the woman will strike the head of the serpent. Have you ever tried to eradicate a snake? Eradicate just means kill, but with uh, more syllables. You can't crush its tail. You can't cut its tail off. You can't stomp on it in the middle. How do you kill a snake? You crush that head, don't you? You strike the head. See, the serpent deals a painful, but ultimately weak blow. But the seed deals a death blow. And that promised seed is, of course, Jesus Christ. Satan dealt him a painful blow at the crucifixion. But ultimately, it was a weak one. Christ crushed the head of the serpent at his resurrection. The victory has been won. Do you hear that? The promise is, in Genesis 3.15, that there's going to be a bruising and a crushing, a striking of the head that crushes the head of the serpent. The victory has been won. We're not waiting for Christ to return in order for there to be victory over the serpent. There already is victory over the serpent. He has already secured the victory. He has already bound the strong man because he is the stronger man. He came into the strong man's house and bound him and claimed authority over it. Christ, the last Adam, has accomplished and is now accomplishing what the first man, Adam, could not accomplish. That is, he has taken and is taking dominion over the earth. We look at this text and we should rejoice because the cosmic battle has been won. It wasn't a scrambling affair. It wasn't just won at Calvary. Wasn't just one here in Genesis 3.15? According to Ephesians 1, it was one before the foundations of the earth. All of this is sorted out. We are victorious because Christ is victorious. Christ has claimed dominion, is claiming dominion. He's exercising his dominion over the earth to this day. So in a world that seems like It's in chaos. We know the spiritual reality that Christ is on the throne. And He is exercising His rule and reign. It's very easy for us to step back, throw our hands in the air, and say, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm just a mom. I stay at home all day and all I hear are screaming and crying kids. I make dinner and then I go to bed and I wake up and do it again. I'm just a a guy at work. No No one depends on me for anything. No one cares about my opinion. No one cares about what I have to say. Who am I? What am I going to do? We're talking about overthrowing a government that is corrupt. Great, now the CIA is going to be on us. We're talking about uh, taking over. How are we supposed to do that? It's easy to feel insignificant, like we're a nobody. Can't do anything. I I played basketball in college. There was a time in my life I really thought that meant something. Um... I was really proud of that, too. I played basketball in college. At, well, I need to, you to understand kind of where I was, okay? This is important. Because, like, I, like, I was one of the best players in my school's history. I was in the top five of all major uh, categories. I mean, I was the stuff. In NCAA basketball, there are several levels. There's Division One, 
Power Five Conference. These, these are the schools that get the one and done kids, right? The one and done kids that go to, high, go to college for one season and then go straight to the NBA. They're getting money straight out the gate, okay? That wasn't me, okay? Then there's, then there's the, the rest of Division I. You've got NBA aspirations, but uh, you, just, you just didn't do well enough in high school to get uh, the one and done treatment. So uh, NCAA Division I, NBA futures. That wasn't me. Then you've got Division II. Division II, you, you had some hiccups. Maybe you were a late developer, but there's still a dream there in the back of your mind that you're going to play in the NBA someday. Maybe you'll transfer to, to Division I, and then you can play in the NBA. And you got, you got future. Then there's the Division Three people. You've made some life mistakes at some point here at Division Three. Uh, you weren't uh, maybe smart enough, maybe you weren't tall enough for the position that you play. There was something that was missing, okay? And so this was Division Three. Uh, NBA dreams, they're really just pipe dreams at this point. Division One, probably not going to happen. Below that is NAIA ball. NAIA ball, NAIA ball, it, it's, it's really good basketball players. If, if they were to walk onto a basketball court that you were on today, you would think, surely you play in the NBA, don't you? And they would laugh at you and say, no, no, I would never even sniff the NBA. I'm nowhere near that good. Below that is the junior college level. And so these guys are trying to get their life cleared up and their life uh, figured out before they go on to a four-year university. I was in none of those categories. Below all of that, NCAA basketball is what's called NCCAA. We threw an extra C in there because we were Christian. <laughs> but you had NCCAA Division I. That was not me. I played in NCCAA Division II basketball. When I walked onto campus, I was automatically the best player on the team. Not because I was particularly good but because I could dribble and run at the same time. <laughs> I loved playing uh, all through college, but I knew even then, uh, this, is, this is nothing. Like this, uh, rec league basketball is more competitive than this. My high school team was better than my college team. Every year, though, we would go to uh, Cookson Hills, Oklahoma, and we would play uh, in this New Year's tournament. And uh, well, it, it was this uh, kind of foster community uh, of kids that were troubled and couldn't be placed in uh, your typical homes. These, these were these kids. And uh, we would come in, eight, nine, ten, however many, however many teams. We would all stay in various houses. And we stayed every year at Miss Sue's house. And the kids would give up their beds so that we could sleep on the bed. And this was a huge deal. They looked forward to it all year. So they, they got, this was their Christmas. They, they, they would uh, hold this out as a, as a behavioral incentive. You get, to, you get to come to the games. You get to uh, be part of uh, the activities if you behave. They had closed circuit television. And so everyone would just sit around and we'd watch. It was the only time we would ever get to watch our opponents on TV because ain't nobody was ever going to put us on TV unless it was like America's Funniest Videos. So, so we went there every year. And these kids, I couldn't believe it. They, they thought we were NCAA Division I, Power Five, one and done level players. And we had a dunk contest and I won it. Mostly because I was one of the few people that could dunk it and didn't do anything special. I just could dunk it and get it in. And afterwards, one of the kids came up and asked for my autograph. And I told him no. Not because like, I thought I was... I, I told him no initially because I knew, kid, I'm making that paper less valuable by putting my name on it. This is nothing. What we're doing is nothing. This isn't college basketball. This is church league basketball at college. That's all it is. But I signed his, I, made, I signed the autograph. The only autograph I've ever been asked to sign. Found out that kid's name was Curtis. And he wrote to us at school. Wrote to the team. 
and we began a relationship. And Curtis eventually came to confess Christ. He would say that that was some part of it. I don't know that it was. But I would say this. Don't suppose that because you aren't the CEO or uh, the mom that's leading everything and the, and the mega, that you have no place in exercising Christ and Christ exercising his dominion over the earth. Don't think because your life isn't what you think it should be that God isn't using you in his rule and reign. God has a habit of using. Uh, some odd ducks in odd places. And here in, in Genesis 3, we see that there's a promise that God had a son in mind. A perfect son that would bring victory. And through that son, victory would come for all. Who called upon his name. Your ability to exercise dominion is not based on your position or your placement or who you are or who you think you should be. Your ability to exercise dominion is based upon the Christ who has redeemed you and the Spirit who dwells within you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in some way, our treatment of this text this morning draws us closer to you and leads us to greater faithfulness as we trust in your victory over Satan. May we partake of the table with humility and self-reflection. And may we come and glorify you as one body in Christ Jesus. Amen.